Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to the Gospel of Mark. And we're turning to Mark chapter 9. And this morning we are focusing in on verses 33 uh, to 37. But we're going to begin our reading back at verse 30, uh, just to set the context. We have been working our way uh, through the Gospel of Mark for those who are visiting with us. And this morning we are uh, coming to this ninth chapter. Mark chapter 90, or Mark chapter 9 at verse 30. This is speaking about Jesus and the disciples. <clears throat> they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It's quite common uh, for sports fans to debate who is the greatest, who is the GOAT, uh, the greatest of all time. You might be a basketball fan and you debate who's the greatest ball player. Is it Jordan or is it James? Uh, Is it uh, Kareem uh, Abdul-Jabbar or is it Kobe Bryant? Uh, You might be a a football fan and you debate who's the best quarterback. Is it Montana or is it Tom Brady? Is it Brett Favre or is it John Elway? You can debate these things. You might be a hockey fan and you debate which team is the greatest team of all time. Sports fans love to debate who is the greatest. And it's all in good fun. But when the debate of who is the greatest becomes personal, when we enter into that debate and we're part of that equation, when we start comparing ourselves with others, it becomes much more sensitive. It becomes much more meaningful. And this morning, that's exactly what we are seeing. We're seeing the disciples comparing themselves. We see the disciples here debating who is the greatest amongst them. And they're, they're really uh, at a... Uh, a concern here about their own position relative to one another. 
And through this whole debacle, we want to see how Christ is teaching his disciples the way of a disciple proper. What is to be the mindset of a disciple? And how are they to relate one to another? And so this morning, we really want to think about uh, this desire for greatness that we see in the disciples, but then also the description of greatness that Jesus gives uh, as uh, he teaches them. And so we are looking here at uh, Mark chapter 9. As we turn back to Mark this morning, uh, that's, we are, the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest among them. Uh, and it tells us uh, just beforehand that they're on the move. Uh, the disciples have been moving uh, on a certain path uh, ever since Mark 8. And ultimately their path is one that is leading them to Jerusalem. And it tells us here in Mark 9 at verse 30, from there they went on and passed through Galilee. Uh, and he did not want anyone to know. Jesus is focusing his attention now on his disciples, uh, especially on teaching them and teaching them about the path that he is on personally. He's teaching them about the path of the Messiah. Uh, and that is why Jesus goes on here to give them a prediction about what is going to take place. You remember that Jesus has already told his disciples what is going to happen. You remember that after after Peter, after Simon Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ, you remember that Jesus began to talk about what would soon take place. He said, the Son of Man must be killed. The Son of Man, he said back in chapter 8, uh, that the Son of Man uh, must be killed, that they will, the scribes and the religious teachers uh, will have him put to death, that these things will uh, take place. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again and he said this plainly but you remember that Peter objected to that because as as he is understanding Jesus to be the promised Messiah as he understands Jesus to be the promised king who would come and deliver them from their enemies he's thinking of one who comes in power one who comes and is victorious one who comes and brings great success for his people. And death and defeat don't fit into that. And so Peter is objecting to this language of Jesus after just saying that he is Lord. He is saying no to Jesus and what he is saying. But Jesus said to Peter, these things must take place. They must take place because it is not just something that is going to happen. But this is part of God's plan. This is the outworking of God's promises. This is what, how salvation is going to be accomplished. And so in that prediction, Jesus was drawing attention to the necessity of these things happening. But here we are told that Jesus once again tells his disciples about what is going to happen. It wasn't a single prediction that Jesus made, but he does this multiple times. And what is striking here is, is that Jesus says not only will he fall into the hands of men, he'll be handed over to the hands of men, but notice as well, Jesus speaks both in the present tense and in the future tense. He's not simply saying something's going to happen down the road, but Jesus is saying something is happening now. We could translate what Jesus is saying here as this, the Son of Man is being delivered into the hands of men. Not only must these things take place, 
but they're already starting to unfold. The wheels are already turning, in other words. Jesus is saying their very journey towards Jerusalem is setting things in motion. Jesus being handed over into the hands of men is not something that happens once Judas betrays him or just when Pilate condemns him. Jesus being handed over is something that is ordained by God and is now being worked out in the experience of Jesus. His willingness to go to Jerusalem is his embrace of that plan. And so Jesus is setting before the disciples once again the path of the Messiah. It is a path of suffering. It is a path of death. It is a path that ultimately works God's salvation. But the disciples are operating on a very different wavelength. The disciples who have been hearing about the kingdom of God, remember Jesus said to them, the kingdom of God will come in power and it will not be long. And so now as they're thinking about the kingdom of power, as they're thinking about coming to Jerusalem, as they're thinking about the Christ, the king coming to his capital, they're expecting big things. And we see that the disciples are arguing amongst themselves about their own rank, about their own greatness, about their own status in that kingdom. And we see how different their, their, their mindsets are. The one who is thinking of accomplishing God's work as a servant and these disciples who are elevating themselves in terms of their own greatness. And so we want to think about this contrast in terms of the, the, the disciples' desire for greatness and the display, or the, dis, uh, the display of greatness in the Lord Jesus. It tells us in verse 33 that they came to Capernaum. You remember Capernaum was the place where Jesus took up residence. Uh, it was an ideal location for Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Uh, and it was a place where Jesus uh, had lots of connections. But as Jesus uh, came to Capernaum, it says that he went into the house and he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Jesus' question is not because he doesn't know what they were talking about. His question is because he does know what they were talking about. And now he wants to address that matter in private with his disciples. But the disciples kept silent. They didn't want to say because of what they had been talking about. Now suddenly it looks embarrassing. They were following their Lord uh, and now they've been spotted. They've been called out for talking about themselves and their own greatness and their own uh, ambitions in this kingdom. And so they kept silent because they were embarrassed. They were debating their rank and position in the kingdom of Christ. And they were more focused on their own greatness uh, in relation to one another. Isn't this true of how we are? Uh, it's quite common to think this way about uh, how we stand before other people. Uh, how much we are held up in the sight of men. How much we are appreciated before others. You can think about even in the world that they were living in, this would have been common, right? You have the Roman world where you have one's greatness signified if you're a Roman citizen versus if you're not a Roman citizen. What kind of Roman citizen are you? What's your status in the empire of Rome? But you also see this working itself out even in the life of the people of Israel. They too were 
consumed with this concept of one's position and rank and greatness. In fact, we have uh, uh, teachings from uh, the Jewish rabbis that have survived, even from the first century BC, that talk about this. They, they wrote a lot about not only thinking about one's own rank, but of how that needed to be visible for others. It needed to be constantly before other people so that they knew their place. Even when it came to things like where you sat in worship or where you sat at meals or how processions of people moved about. One document from the first century BC is known as the rule of the community. And in that, uh, this is what it says. The priests shall enter first, ranked one after another according to the perfection of their spirit then the Levites, and then the people, all uh, one after another, in their thousands, their hundreds, fifties, and tens, that every Israelite may know his place in the community of God according to the everlasting design. What were those Jewish teachers trying to say? You need to know your rank, your position. And that position is reflective of your glory in God's eternal design. This shows you something of your status that all people must recognize. If you want to know how important you are, just watch how people move around. And so this is the world that the the disciples are living in. And this is how they themselves are operating. Which of them is the greatest? Now stop and think. They're going to Capernaum. And as they're going there, disciples don't walk alongside their master. You're following. A disciple is one who follows their teacher. They're subordinate to their teacher. And as they're walking along to Capernaum, they would walk on these narrow paths. And so it would induce, it would encourage the single-filed nature of following one after another on these paths as they walk. But it could be something as small as who follows closest behind Jesus that sparks this whole controversy as to who is the greatest. Because you can see their position of importance by how close they are to Jesus. It's not clear what it is that sparks this whole argument, but there is something in the disciples that they're wanting to assert their dominance, their superiority over one another. Even later, uh, when John comes to Jesus and he complains, he says, someone was casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. You would expect John's complaint there to be, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following you. But that's not what John complains. His concern isn't about the man's personal allegiance to Christ, but about acknowledging the association of the disciples. He's not a follower of us. He didn't recognize us in what he was doing. And so, again, there's this concern about the disciples being recognized uh, for their their position and their rank. So uh, here these disciples are uh, fighting amongst one another. uh, And it can all seem very comical uh, what they're doing. They're, They're having this argument amongst themselves about who is the greatest while Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem to die, as Jesus is talking about his own suffering, they're talking about their own glory and their own privilege. Maybe you've seen at some point when a group of children are called to gather together into a line, 
And uh, many times those children will kind of buffer at the front, all trying to be first. Um, because then it shows they're first to get what they want. They deserve it. Uh, they want to establish themselves. They want to be recognized first. And so there can be pushing and shoving at the front of the line. But here these disciples are doing something very similar because they want to put themselves before others. They deserve it. They think they're better than others. And that's working itself out in their line of arguing. So uh, these dis- uh, disciples are revealing something that we can see on, in any heart. A bentness on ourselves. Where we focus in on ourselves, but that focus on ourselves also works out to putting others down. That I'm more important than you. Uh, and that becomes uh, uh, an ambition in and of itself. So we see the, the disciples here, they're, they're craving after this greatness. They are arguing amongst themselves who is greatest among them. Is it one of the three that went up on the mountain to see Jesus? Is it because some of them failed to be able to cast out demons that somehow they are now less worthy, that they are of lower rank? These disciples are fighting amongst themselves uh, over uh, their own importance. But we also see the display of greatness. It tells us that Jesus asked them, what were you discussing along the way? And they were silent. And then in verse 35, it says that he went into the house and he sat down and he called the 12. Usually when we sit down, uh, we're sitting down to have a rest. Uh, We're sitting down maybe because we're tired or to relax. But sitting down in scripture is also a sign of beginning to teach. You remember that when Jesus was in the synagogue, that Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah. And then it tells us, and then he sat down. Not because he was done with what he was doing in the synagogue, but now he was beginning to teach. And here Jesus is doing the same thing. He sat down because he saw something in the disciples that needed to be addressed. There is something wrong in their mindset that now he is going to bring up and to correct. And so he sets before them what true greatness looks like. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and he must be a servant of all. He's inverting the intuitions that we have of putting myself first. And Jesus is saying quite the opposite, that we're willing to take the low position, the last position, rather than to assert oneself. We're able to think about the whole picture instead of just singling out ourselves. We're willing to take uh, the position of a servant. And then Jesus actually provides them with a concrete example. It says he took a little child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. To receive or to welcome is what Jesus is talking about here. What does it mean when you welcome someone into your home? When you welcome someone into your home, you're saying that this person is significant. You're saying this person is worthy of my time. This is someone that I want to care for. I want to honor them by caring and serving their interests and their needs. And sometimes the danger is is that we might welcome people who are only of positions of influence. Maybe they're positions of influence in terms of wealth or their standing in society. 
But Jesus here takes a little child, a weak child, a vulnerable child, and puts that child in their midst and says, whoever is following me is to be a servant of all, including children. That instead of puffing oneself up and saying, this is how great I am, I am over these people, Jesus is saying greatness is seen in a humility that is willing to condescend to care for all, to lower oneself to the needs of others. And he sets before them a child, one who cannot repay in turn, one who is dependent uh, on their needs. And Jesus is saying we are to welcome them, we are to serve them uh, in humility. This is again against the the instinctive or the intuitive nature uh, of how we operate. Uh, Jesus' statement goes against the natural way of thinking. Uh, The Greek world would have looked at service and the work of a servant as something undignified, something demeaning. There are Greek philosophers who would say things like, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? How can a man be happy when he has to serve? Isn't happiness when I get to do what I want? Isn't happiness when I live for myself? But here's Jesus saying, the life of a disciple is one of service. It's one of lowering oneself in order to care for the needs of others. And that shapes the way that Christians are to live. You think about parenting. How does that impact a parent's life? A parent cares for the needs of a child And in a world where parenting may be looked at as a drag or as something of a burden, they're being reminded that it's actually their greatest honor because they are called to a position that reflects the character of God. They're called to a position of serving those in need. They're giving of themselves, not for self-interests, but to care for the other person. Sometimes people joke about having kids so that they have a long-term insurance plan built in. Their kids will take care of them when they're old. But they're caring for their kids, not for themselves, but to display the love of God, to show God's love for them in attending to their needs. And so we can highlight here that Jesus is highlighting that that disciples are to care for those who are vulnerable, to those who are weak, those who are not valued in society. But Jesus uses a child on purpose. He chooses to set a little child in their midst and says, this is your calling to serve the children. This is your calling to care for those who are not valued and to be willing to lower oneself in a way that builds others up. So Jesus here describes what true greatness looks like. It's to humble oneself. It is to assume the posture of a servant. They are to welcome them in a way that says they are worthy of my care and uh, that our calling is uh, to care for them as Jesus does. That means that we will attend to their needs, including their spiritual needs, because their lives are just as precious as our own. It means that we will welcome them for Jesus' sake, that is, to make Christ known to them. 
It means that in the eyes of the world, this will look uh, as something pointless and futile, but in the eyes of God, it is something honorable and pleasing. Jesus says when we welcome children into our midst, we are receiving and honoring Christ himself. That's the calling of a church, that the children belong to Christ and that we are to welcome them for the sake of Christ and to show them the love of Christ in the way that we attend to their needs. Children aren't simply the future of the church. They are the church. And they are to be the objects of God's love in the way that we move forward. So Jesus describes uh, what uh, is to mark the way of the disciple. Humility and uh, being a servant. But what is going to cause someone to embrace Jesus' teachings here? If if that mindset of the Greek philosopher, why would anyone want to serve? How can anyone be happy if he has to be a servant? What causes a person to be changed to think suddenly that serving uh, and taking the low position is a good thing? How is it that even our society has come to believe that? But because of the influence of the gospel here. Jesus has transformed the way that our culture thinks and we swim in those waters that we now honor the idea of a servant because of what Christ himself has done. But when Jesus says, this is the way that you are to live, humbling yourself, living as a servant, what causes these disciples to embrace that is because they see it in God himself. This is how God treats us. The prophet Isaiah once said, Uh, In Isaiah 57, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I will dwell in the high and the holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What Isaiah is highlighting there is, is that God is great. When we think about what greatness is, it directs us back to God. But not only is God great for who he is, God is great for what he does. And although he is high and lifted up, he is willing to condescend to our level. He's willing to take the low position. He's willing to take the position of a servant. And that's ultimately what the gospel is. That though he was in the form of God, equal, he counted equality not something to be grasped, but took the form of a servant. That the Son of God assumed a human nature in order to serve sinners, and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He lowered himself in order that our sins might be covered, in order that our spiritual needs might be met. This is the love of God. This is the character of the greatness of the God that is. And those who have been the recipients of God's grace become transformed because they see that I am someone who is needy and God met my needs through his son. And now when I see neediness around me, I identify with them rather than belittling them. I see that I too am the recipient of grace. And now I too want to show that care for another. 
And it begins to transform the way that people relate. It changes the way that we look at those who are vulnerable, those who are weak. It changes the way that parents look at children, how society looks at the unborn. It changes the way that the church thinks about one another. We begin to look at one another in a way that says, I have been needy and my needs have been met. And now I desire to serve others in humility, knowing that God sent his son. And by welcoming children now, we are honoring the God who has revealed his grace to us. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. That's what the transfiguration was celebrating. But the one who is the radiance of God's glory was willing to be stripped and crucified on a cross so that we might be spared of the judgment to come, that we might be exalted and enter into the kingdom of God ourselves. When we contemplate who, the God, is, who God is and what he has done, it should shape and transform what we think about greatness. Greatness belongs to God, who raises up sinners and gives them a place at, uh, in his kingdom. J.C. Ryle once said, the world's idea of greatness is to rule, but Christian greatness consists in serving. The world's ambition is to receive honor and attention, but the desire of the Christian should be rather to give than to receive. Here are these disciples arguing about their own glory. And Jesus is taking them aside and saying, true greatness is much different than that. Rather than dwelling on ourselves and focusing on our own glory, Jesus is painting the path, showing them the glory of God. He was willing to assume the posture of a servant. He was willing to endure suffering so that those who are sinners might become saints. And this changes the way that we think about greatness. We see greatness then in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also then begin to see greatness in the lives of disciples. Jesus has been setting before his disciples what it means to be a follower of him. What does it mean to be a disciple? Mark's gospel has been giving us answers to that. It means, one, that you make confession. As Peter did, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It means that you believe in Jesus as Lord. But a disciple goes beyond that. Jesus said anyone who would follow him must take up his cross. There is a sense of self-denial that comes with being a Christian. You can't live primarily for self. There must be something greater to life than simply serving self. But Jesus also said that a disciple is characterized by dependence. You remember when he spoke to the, the father of the demon-possessed boy, and the father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus said to him in return, all things are possible for the one who believes. What he needs is to depend on the purposes and the power of God. The life of faith is trusting in the God who is. But here we also see another aspect of discipleship, and it is the characteristic of servanthood. That rather than living to promote and amplify self, we're willing to take the low position, which seems so counterintuitive because it points people to the greatness of God. Why assume the posture of a servant? How can you be happy? Because it brings glory to my God. It, it echoes what God has done for me. It points to people where true greatness is found. 
And that is what I'm celebrating myself. When we're captivated by the greatness of God, then we'll ourselves embrace that low position. When we recognize what God has done, we will gladly follow in the steps of the Lord Jesus ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess, Lord, that pride and self-glory uh, is so wrapped up in our own interests, in our own uh, way of thinking. It is hard oftentimes to, to separate our motives and our intentions. We pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to live for something greater than self, to live not simply as uh, the world at large or whatever the passing mi mindsets are, but that we would be shaped by the greatness of our God. So help us, Lord, to uh, understand who you are, but help us also to marvel in what you have done through your Son. We thank you, Lord, uh, for your grace, and we pray that by your Spirit you would continue to be shaping and molding us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this time uh, we're going to have uh, Anna's baptism, uh, but just before we do that, uh, it is good for us to take uh, a moment just to, to talk and to describe what it is that we are doing and why it is that we are doing it. Baptism is a beautiful thing uh, that Jesus has commanded his church uh, to do in remembrance of him. He commands uh, his disciples to go out into all nations uh, to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's a truth that we should celebrate because it is a picture of salvation. It is a picture of the washing away of our sins. It's a picture of our union with Christ. It's a picture of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in all of these ways, we're seeing the richness of a very simple practice. Water being applied to an individual. It has a richness of meaning uh, that all Christians can celebrate. But it's also true that many Christians have different convictions about what is the proper way of administering baptism. Many Christians believe that only adults who have made profession of faith should be baptized, uh, whereas other Christians believe that those who have made profession of faith with their children uh, should be baptized. And our church is one of those churches that believe that both believers and their children are commanded to be baptized by the Lord Jesus. So how is it that we come to such radical different conclusions about the place of children? It is because of the way that we read our scriptures. But to be able to understand why it is we believe that children should be baptized, it's important to understand God's whole message of grace. Underlying the diversity of God's biblical revelation, there is a unifying, singular covenant of grace. So as God's message is being revealed over the course of centuries, it's not different projects that God is doing, but rather there is this constant work of God that is happening down through time that God has been purposing to bless sinners. Abraham had the gospel preached to him. He believed God and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. He entered into a covenant with God, which was signified by the sign of circumcision. But he was commanded to apply that sign of his adult faith to his infant child and to all children thereafter. Why? Because of God's promise. 
I will be a God to you and to your children. The saving purposes of God include the children of believers. And you see that as you work slowly through the scriptures. God's promise to Abraham was that he would be a God to him and to his children. God's promise uh, in the time of Moses was that he would be a God to them and to their children. God's promise to David was that he would be a God and to his offspring after him. God's promise in the new covenant, whether you look in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or in the new covenant scriptures is always inclusive of children. Uh, So there's this constancy that we see in scripture as well. Uh, The New Testament tells us that baptism uh, has replaced the old covenant sign of circumcision. Circumcision was that sign that admitted one to being recognized as part of the covenant community. Circumcision was God's pledge to honor his promise to all who, like Abraham, trusted in him. So when we think about circumcision, circumcision was not a national badge. Circumcision was not even focused primarily on the individual's faith. Circumcision was a sign of God's promise. And when we come to the new covenant and we start talking about baptism, baptism is also talking about God's promise. It is an objective declaration of God that all who believe in the Lord Jesus will have their sins washed will be united with Christ, are those who have uh, uh, the spirit of God indwelling in their hearts. They are the recipients of God's covenant promises. No longer then is this covenant sign, uh, circumcision, which foreshadowed, it pointed forward to the shedding of Christ's blood. But baptism is the sign, a sign that points back on what Christ, the Messiah, has accomplished, the washing away of sin, and thus our union with him. When we move to the New Testament, no new principle is introduced. Children are not now excluded from the covenant community. Rather, in an era that we rightly describe as a greater covenant, as the writer of Hebrews describes, based on better promises, children don't have a reduced status, but a more privileged one. The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost uh, said, For the promise is for you and for your children and for those who are far off as many as the Lord our God calls to himself. So as Peter, a Jew, is speaking to Jews, he uses the language of Abraham, God's word from the book of Genesis, to describe God's promise even to them. The promise is for you. They are to be baptized, both them and uh, uh, their children. The echo of the promise was made to Abraham is clear. Children have the same covenantal status then in the new covenant as in, as in the old. They are set apart as holy, according to 1 Corinthians. Not meaning they're saved, but meaning they're consecrated. They're not pagans, but they're in a covenant relationship with God. They are addressed as, covenant, uh, as being part of the covenant community. In Ephesians, children are called to obey their parents. They are recipients, then, of the sign of the covenant. Households were baptized, uh, reflecting family solidarity. And when Jesus took infants into his arms and blessed them, he demonstrated not only that passive infants may receive grace, but also that God's love continues to our children through us. Let us who are here uh, be reminded of our own baptisms. How can we improve our baptism? By remembering that God's promise 
precedes anything that we've done to deserve his grace. That we improve our baptism as we remember, we're reminded that God's promise is what guides and guards us all through life. That he goes before us and it is by his grace that we are saved and that we're preserved. The privileges of the covenant into which we have entered and the responsibility to which we are to live to glorify God. If we have been baptized, then we are called to make our calling and election sure. We are called to live under the lordship of Christ. Let the parents especially be charged to not neglect the means of grace. Be sure that we provide a godly example, that we pray for our child, and that we instruct them in the word of God. And that as a church, uh, we make use of opportunities uh, to speak into one another's life. Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray uh, that as we think about baptism, Lord, that it would not be something that uh, uh, simply becomes divisive, but something that ultimately causes us to rejoice. To know that our God is pleased to give us visible signs of his grace to show pledges of the promises of God to those who call on the Lord Jesus, to know that our guilt can be washed away, and to know that we can be the recipients of your favor. Lord, we pray that you would help us then as a church uh, to desire your blessing from generation to generation, and that we would be uh, not only improving our own baptism as we reflect on your ways, but that we would be desiring to see the, the actual uh, physical baptism uh, realized in the lives of those who have been baptized. 